That was a very fitting song, and I didn't know that one, but, uh, but thank you so much for leading it. Um, so tonight we're going to continue with some of the ideas that we started with this morning, only we're going to look uh, at an actual example of the early church trying to put some of those ideas into practice. We're going to look at a vision that Paul had that he thought would do an immeasurable amount of good for his ministry and for the churches uh, to whom he was ministering. If you remember, Paul spent his life as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is a Jew. Uh, he, is, he is clear about that. Uh, he was raised as a Jew. He cares very much for Israel. Even in his writings to Gentiles, he expresses uh, the, the advantage of being a Jew. And he, he does not, he's not ashamed of being a Jew. He, he is someone who cares deeply for Israel and for their scriptures and for uh, his, his heritage. And yet he's also someone who cares deeply about God's mission to the Gentile world. In fact, he thinks that's what being a true Israelite is about. is about opening up the door to the whole world to enter into God's covenant family. So that Jews and Gentiles hand in hand will be one family. He believes that's the, like central to what the gospel is. Creating this unified family of believers now and forever through the forgiveness and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul cares very much about Jews and Gentiles. And one of the ways that he thinks he can overcome some of the animosity and the boundaries that have been placed between Jew and Gentile is through the acts of generosity, like we talked about this morning. Through self-giving, sacrificial love that is given from one to another. Uh, It's amazing how much not only receiving kindness from someone can help you appreciate the person who gave it, but even an act of, of offering kindness to another person can help you appreciate them even more. Uh, that's one of um, uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, suggestions for, uh, for how to mend a, a, a relationship that might be an enmity or a rivalry. He, uh, he uh, talks about a time where he was had, had basically a rival, and rather than what you might think you would do is lend that person something and, and you know, do an act of kindness towards them. Instead, what he suggested was, he, he said there was a book missing, it was an almanac missing from his library that he didn't have, that he wanted to have, and so he asked the other man if he could borrow it from him. And the other guy, I think begrudgingly, because they had had a rivalry, but he decided to give it. And then uh, he used it, he was thankful, he returned it to him. And like that act in and of itself of giving and sharing and, and uh, engaging in kindness help to repair their relationship. And I think Paul is thinking, you know what? If we have animosity between Jews and Gentiles, I think there are a couple of things that could help with this. One of the things that he does is theologically, like spiritually, he tries to demonstrate to Gentiles how thankful they should be for Jews. Because it was through Jews uh, through whom the, the Messiah came, and it was through the Israelites that they had the scriptures, and it was the Israelites who, who began to teach, like Paul himself is an Israelite who taught Gentiles the gospel. And so Gentiles came to have faith and salvation because of the Jews. And so Gentiles should certainly be thankful for that. And one of the, the points that he's going to make is that if someone has helped you with the most important things, spiritual things and salvation, then surely you can respond to that person by giving them physical things they need, like help or wealth or, or things that can help them through difficulties. Because something has happened as Paul is doing his missionary journey. In Jerusalem and in Judea, there is a famine. And a lot of the Christians there, a lot of people there, 
are suffering and they are going through hardship and there's not enough to go around. And he goes to these Gentile churches and his idea for facilitating harmony in this relationship was what if I start taking up collections among these Gentile churches that I'm visiting and I compile them and then I make a trip back to Jerusalem and I help disperse the funds among the, uh, the Jews who were there who were suffering from the famine and this like, huge humanitarian effort where he's collecting funds from throughout the ancient world and through Asia Minor and Achaia and Macedonia and like, all of this in Galatia. He can take uh, funds from all of these places by Gentile Christians and compile them and give them as a gift to the Jews. And that would be something that shows how much Gentiles care for Jews. And if you remember the logic this morning, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is not the reverse. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. You might think, oh, well, if the Gentiles love the Jews, if their heart is with them, then they'll give them money. That might be true. But I think more than that, even if their heart isn't with them, give them the money. And what often happens is your heart follows. Your heart follows your treasure. And so if they do give them this money, that would be something that gets them invested in the care of the Jews. And then the Jewish people would then be able to receive help and wealth. And as they are eating and as they are living off of that contribution, they're going to every day be grateful. I sure am glad that Paul has been going out there and evangelizing these Gentiles. I didn't even know about these Christians over there. Or or all I've thought about about them was, you know, whether or not they've been circumcised or like all of these questions. Questions and religious uh, dogmas that we've been arguing about. But isn't it great to know that there are people who love Jesus, who are out there, who I've never even met, who have just sacrificed because they love me, even though they've never met me. That's the type of thing that helps overcome the, the struggles and the boundaries and the, the fights that can emerge among brothers. And so Paul has this idea we should do this. The Christians, the Jewish Christians are suffering because of a famine. Let's take up a collection. And as you read through his letters, you see the seeds of this idea and just direct teaching about it pop up quite a bit. Uh, Look with me at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. There's an interesting little phrase that Paul uses uh, when talking about uh, His meeting with uh, Peter and James with the church in Jerusalem, there was a council in Jerusalem that Paul went to and they discussed uh, some some issues related to Jew and Gentile evangelism and and, uh, the unity of the gospel. And uh, if you look at Galatians chapter 2 and uh, verse 7, He says, uh, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So he's saying me and Peter, basically, we've both been entrusted with the gospel, me to the Gentiles, him to the Jews. He says in verse 8, for he, that's God, who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectively worked in me also to the Gentiles. So the same God and the same gospel is behind both of our missions. We just have different audiences. So then verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James 
and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles just as they go to the circumcised. So like those who were seen as three central leaders, pillars in the early church in Jerusalem, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and to Barnabas for his missionary journeys to go into the Gentiles. So this is Jews and Gentiles saying, hey, we're on the same page, working for the same God with the same gospel, teaching the same Lord, no matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, and I approve of your work and you approve of my work, so let's go and be teammates in this thing. But then notice verse 10. This was the the only thing that, that Peter added to it. He says, or that they added to. He says, they only asked us to remember the poor. He says, but that's the very thing I was eager to do. And so Paul says, you know, we extended the right hand of fellowship. They gave fellowship to us. We all agreed. And the last, the parting note was, make sure that you remember the poor as you do this also. And Paul is like, well, fantastic. That's what I wanted to do anyway. And so right there, I think you're seeing some of the seeds of why Paul would take an effort like this so seriously. He genuinely cares about Israel. He genuinely cares about fellowship in the churches, and he genuinely cares about the poor. Well, this is something that puts all of that together, and uh, and he can encourage his Gentile churches to do it. So look with me now uh, at Romans chapter 15. This is another one of those passages where he just kind of mentions this goal in passing. But if you've read Romans, the first 15 chapters to get to this point, you know that this goal he has is central to what the whole book of Romans is about. Like the book of Romans is showing how the one gospel uh, is, is a call for reconciliation and unity among Jews and Gentiles and how they both, even though they might have received their call differently and they might have experienced uh, the history of that call differently, they each have an essential, uh, an essential role to play within the call of the gospel. Uh, one of the descriptions he uses is like a tree where there's, you know, some branches that are taken off and some that are grafted on, uh, but then later with the hopes that the first ones that were taken off will be put back on so that you can have a full tree blossoming with all kinds of Jews and Gentile fruit on the thing, and it's one beautiful tree with Jesus. Like, like the, he uses that illustration, but that's just a, a brief picture of what he's been saying throughout the whole book about how you both have a role to play in this, and you're both essential parts of the, the of what the gospel is. And so quit bickering with each other about whether who's the greatest or who has the was here first or or how you should handle certain holidays or certain foods. Like all of these things are falling short of what the actual central call of the kingdom of God is. So join with one another and be one. And so as he's made this point for like 15 chapters, when you get to chapter 15, he's speaking about some of his travel plans. And up to this point, Paul has not been to Rome. So he writes this letter without knowing the Christians there personally. He knows about them, uh, but he hasn't been there yet, and he plans on going there. So I think this letter does a couple of things. One, I think it helps resolve some of the, the conflicts that are taking place at the Roman church among Jews and Gentiles. But it also explains pretty detailed his vision of the church for Jews and Gentiles. And one of the reasons that's important is because he wants to take that vision all the way past Rome into Spain. He, he's planning on going as, uh, as west as you can imagine. Uh, and he, his goal is 
after staying in Jerusalem for a bit, he wants to travel and then stop in Rome for a while and maybe spend some time with him and really get to know them. They now have this letter that explains a lot of his understanding about his Gentile mission. And then he's hoping maybe they'll even be a supporting church as he then goes west and then as he goes to Spain. So like right now he's been supported by Antioch. And I think the letter to Romans One of the goals of it is to get the church in Rome to support him as he begins to make his missionary efforts to Spain. And so he's telling them all of this when you get to chapter 15. He's telling them about some of his goals and what he wants to happen between them. So look with me at verse 22. He says, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. It's like I've wanted to, but I keep being prevented. But now... With no further place for me in these regions, and since I have uh, had for many years a longing to come and see you guys in Rome whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So, so notice what he's saying. It's, I'm wanting to go to Spain, but first I want to stay, enjoy your company for a while, and I'd like to get some help from you on the way to Spain. So that's, that's the stuff that I was just saying. So he mentions all of that, but before he can do that, he has to finish some of his travels that he's on right now. So verse 25, he says, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. And then notice verse 26 and 27. This is that gift from the churches where he mentions it. He says, for Macedonia... And Achaia, so Macedonia, that's going to be like Berea, Thessalonica, some of those cities. Uh, And then uh, when you get down to to Achaia, that's going to be Greece, uh, it's going to be Athens, that's going to be Corinth. Like, so a lot of these churches you might have heard of before and be somewhat familiar with. He's saying, I've been through these areas and they have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and, for, and they are indebted to them. For, and this is where we talked about earlier, the way that they both have a role, and the reason Gentiles are Christians is because of what God has done with the Jews. And so the Gentiles have received spiritual benefit from the Jews, so it only makes sense that they could give physical blessings back to the Jews. If you can receive spiritual blessings from someone, you can give physical blessings back. And so verse 27 is where he says that. For if the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal uh, on this fruit of theirs, I will go by way of you to Spain. So all of that, you could just see, even as he's making his travel plans, He's been to Achaia. He's been to Macedonia. Now he wants to take everything he's gathered from them, this big collection. He wants to bring it to Jerusalem, help the Christians there, because now Gentiles and Jews are helping each other. The Jews have helped the Gentiles hear the gospel. Now the Gentiles are helping the Jews through this famine. Everyone's going to be a big happy family. And once that happens, he's going to go to Rome, spend some time there, get to know everyone, uh, hopefully get some support from them as he makes his way to Spain to preach the gospel there. Little does he know he's going to be arrested in Jerusalem, uh, and that's going to throw off these plans of his. But that's his plan as he writes Romans, and he's he's telling them everything that he hopes to do. Um, But in these plans, you see that idea of Jews have helped Gentiles, and so Gentiles should be helping Jews. Um, Then look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 
This is where he gives some pretty detailed instructions about the way that they should be taking up this contribution. Uh, If he's wanting to help the churches in Judea and in Jerusalem, well, he needs to get that money from, like, the churches in uh, Achaia or, or Corinth and these different places. And so he tells them a strategy they can use to, to, to put all their funds together so that when he gets there, he doesn't have to go to like every single house of Christians and be like, do you have anything you want to give? Do you have anything you want to give? Do you? No, this is something they can do, and it's a practice that we still engage in um, where he can, uh, he can use their Sunday assemblies as a time where they can put their funds together. That way when he arrives, it's already stored up. So, like, look at uh, chapter 16, the first four verses. He says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So, remember, he's, he's been telling, like, Macedonia, this is Achaia, where Corinth is, also in Galatia. Like, he's been telling all of these Gentile churches to do this. He says, Just like I told the churches in Galatia, I want you guys to do this. Verse 2. On the first day of the week, that's when they're gathering together for, for their worship, Each one of you is to put aside and save up as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So like on the first day of the week, have have some sort of uh, storage (laughs) where you're putting your collection so that when I arrive, it's all there in one place. And you don't have to then go and round up a collection when I get here. Verse 3, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And, verse 4, if it's fitting for me to go also, uh, they will go with me. So he says, when I get there, I want you guys to choose someone you trust very much. And uh, I'll write letters for him, vouching for his authenticity as a faithful Christian. And we can make sure that he's watching the money and he can carry it to Jerusalem. And I'd love to go with them. In fact, that, that's kind of my plan is I'm going to go with them. And so Paul is, again, these are just kind of some travel plans. But notice how in the travel plans he's explaining, I want you Gentiles to give money to the Christians who are in Jerusalem. So what, what is his goal with all of this? Well, it's kind of like what we were talking about this morning. Um, when Jesus calls us not to serve two masters— Uh, When Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, when Jesus calls us to not worry so much about wealth, like all of that plays a role in Christian generosity. If you care more about wealth, if you care more about money than you do a brother or sister who's in need, it's going to be really, really hard to get a collection like this. And if you don't get a collection like this, it's going to be really, really hard to foster the type of unity that Paul envisions for the church and that he he strives so much for. And so he wants them to not seek their wallets first. Don't seek your bank account first. Seek first the reign of God and seek first his righteousness and, and demonstrate the generosity that he calls you to have in the way that you see and view and, and care about one another. There's no telling how much good that can be done. First of all, hungry people can have food, and that matters in the kingdom of heaven. Like feeding the, the, the hungry and, and clothing the poor, that matters. Like full stop, that in and of itself is kingdom work. But then also beyond that, 
it is a way of opening up the door to others who might see that type of generosity in the church and be attracted to a family and a community that genuinely cares for one another. So it's going to open up doors to evangelism, certainly. And beyond that, it can facilitate unity among Christians who otherwise have every reason in the world to be divided. The world has divided up Jews and Gentiles for a very long time, and Paul is trying to break down those those barriers and those walls in one of the best ways he can do it is by demonstrating sacrificial generosity towards one another. So like this type of generosity is so important for the church being the community that God calls us to be. And so with all of that in mind, let's turn to 2 Corinthians now, chapters 8 and 9. Because 2 Corinthians is where Paul gives his most detailed and, uh, and full description of what he's trying to do uh, with gathering up this this collection, this aid to go help the churches in Judea. And he's going to encourage the church at Corinth not to give up on it. Because you remember, we just read 1 Corinthians, where he says, hey, I want you guys to take up this collection on the first day of the week. And it sounds like they started doing that. And then it sounds like they stopped doing that. And Paul doesn't want them to forget about this good work that they started. Finish the work you started. You guys started it. You cared about it. You believed in it. You you desired to be a a part of this, this ministry and this mission. Don't forget about it and give up on it now. Or don't just have desire but no follow through. He wants them to actually follow through on that which they said so long ago was a good idea. And so 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 It's a brilliant example of persuasive writing. It is a way of Paul persuading the Christians to give to go help the churches in Judea. Now, one way you could persuade them is he could say, hey, I'm an apostle. Do this or you're going to hell or something like that. Like he could command them to do it and say that it's a sin if you don't do it. But if he were to do that, he would, in essence, be forsaking the whole emphasis of the generosity that he's trying to to bring about here. It, it It would be compelling them to do something they don't want to do, and that's not an act of love. And in order for this to work the way he wants it to, in order for it to work the way God wants it to, it has to be a cheerful act of love. And so he actually says he's not commanding them. This is not a commandment. He's not going to go that route. But he's going to be quite persuasive going other ways of showing why this is a really good work for them to engage in and why they should follow through on it. So let's look at a couple of uh, Paul's strategies here to uh, bring about generosity among the Gentile churches to give to the church in Judea. So let's look at 2 Corinthians. Uh, I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 8. Basically, what you should look for here is remember, and this this. This is one where geography helps. But he's talking to Corinth, which is in Achaia. Right north of them is Macedonia. Macedonia has a whole bunch of other cities there. Um, Philippi and and Thessalonica and and, uh, and Berea and these others. So if you look at Macedonia, they are not known for their wealth. Not nearly as much as Achaia is in Greece and uh, in Corinth. They are more of an impoverished place. And what he's going to do is he's going to sing praises about how generous they have been and how they went beyond what they even thought possible. Like they suffered to make this happen. And he's going to use, hold those churches up as an example and as a light for the church at Corinth to be able to see and follow and imitate. And so uh, let's look at the first five verses. He says, now brethren, 
we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. It's like, I want to tell you about the grace of God that has been given in these churches right to your north. They've been unbelievable. Verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, uh, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So it's like they're going through hardships and they're poor, but with great joy, they were overwhelmingly uh, uh, generous. They, they were overflowing with liberality when it came to this, uh, to this contribution. It's like the poor sufferers up north, they were generous and loving. They, were, they gave beyond what any of us even thought imaginable. He says in verse 3, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability— they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation or fellowship in the supporting of the saints. He says, like, they not only gave what they were able to give, they gave beyond what they were able to give, and they begged us for the opportunity to do it. They said, please, please, we want to be part of this fellowship with these churches in, in Judea. So, like, that's, a, that's an awesome example there. It makes sense that Paul would want to start with them because he's showing the churches in Achaia, the church at Corinth, the type of attitude he wants them to develop when it comes to generosity and to giving. He says in verse 5, And this, not only as we expected, but notice this, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And now we find out the reason they were willing to do that so much. The reason that people engage in actions like this, it's because they first fully committed themselves to the Lord. And that actually becomes the foundation of, of anything else Paul is going to do. It's out of their love for the Lord that they grew to love people that they otherwise never would have. It's out of their love for the Lord that they learned how to demonstrate that type of generosity. What we'll see here in just a second, as Paul keeps writing, is the Lord— even more than the church of Macedonia, becomes the ultimate model of generosity. So even the church of Macedonia, they were following the example of Jesus when they gave. And it was because they had first committed themselves to him that they were willing to bring his example into their own life and that he wants the church at Corinth to follow suit in that. And so committing yourself to the Lord first becomes essential here. Um, but then uh, if you, we read verses 6 through 8, Paul is then going to turn not just by showing them an example of someone else, but he's going to start talking about the church there at Corinth and in, in, in Achaia. And he's going to talk about how, you know what, you guys actually are pretty awesome also. Like in every way that I, that, I can, uh, that I can write, you are doing an excellent job living out the Christian life. So let's make sure that you don't forsake this one area. You are doing so well in so many different ways. Let's make sure that you also do well in this way. If you look at verse uh, 6 through 8, he says, So we urge Titus that as he had previously uh, made a beginning, so that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Basically, it seems like it started through the preaching of Titus. And he wanted, uh, because of Titus's encouragement, it to come to completion, them to finish this good work also. But then verse 7, But just as you abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love which we inspired in you— See that you abound in this gracious work also. He says, you guys have everything. You guys have faith and utterances and knowledge and love and, and eagerness and all of that. Make sure you also aim that 
towards this work of generosity and grace as well. Verse, um, verse 8, I am not speaking this as a command. So again, that's what he's, he's, he's clear. I'm not commanding you. You have to do it. I'm not saying that, uh, that your soul depends on it. I'm not saying you're not a Christian anymore if you don't do this. But as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. But I want you to be able to prove how sincere your love is through this opportunity. You have been loving and faithful in so many ways. Prove your loving faithfulness in this way as well. Why? Because whether I'm talking to the churches in Macedonia or the church at Corinth, you each have the same uh, role model in this type of generosity. And that's found in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's a beautiful verse. But it's rich when you take, like, each phrase of it. Jesus, who was rich, I think that's probably a reference to his um, pre-incarnate status in heaven with God. Uh, He is someone who enjoyed equality with God. And yet, he became a human. He became impoverished. He became someone who suffered. He became poor. I mean, more poor than we could imagine. He, He, like, I don't know how much money you've ever lost in a day. You know, you can, you can talk about different numbers. None of us have ever lost heaven in a day. Uh, equality with God to being born in a manger among animals in Bethlehem. That's quite a loss right there. The way Philippians describes it is that he, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's not a thing to cling to. But he made himself nothing taking the form of a slave. It's like you read through what Jesus did, and he let go of all of it. Why? Why did he, though he was rich, make himself poor? It was for your sake and, and for my sake. He says it was because he loved others that he, though he was rich, he made himself poor for others so that others or you or me, through his poorness, through his poverty— might become rich. We were spiritually destitute and lost, and yet through his poverty, through his suffering on the cross, we now have heaven. We now have attained uh, the, the immortality and the, the life that he left behind for us. And so all of that is a way to say Jesus becomes the ultimate pinnacle model of what it means to have and then to give it up for love for someone else so that the ones who don't have now can. And he's saying, that's what I want you to see happening when you give to the churches in Judea. You'll have less. You, you might have excess right now and you might lose that. You might have this much money and then you'll have this much money. You might be rich and even become poor so that they who are poor might become rich. And even if you do that, all you've done is follow the example of Christ. He becomes our model for sacrificial giving. And so Paul writes that in, in, in beautiful language. And then verse 11 goes on to say, or sorry, verse 10. He says, I give my opinion in this matter. Uh, For this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. 
but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was a readiness to desire it, so now there may also be the completion of it by your ability. So basically, I think that's a, 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 a way of saying, don't just have a good idea, do it. You know, there, I've, I know I've mentioned this before, and I know this is something I do. Sometimes I get a good idea. It's like, you know what? I should encourage this person, or I should do something for this person. Or like, I can think of, right now, I'm, I'm actually doing it. I'm thinking of specific ideas that I've had that were, I think, good ideas that I never did. Uh, I thought about them, and I thought, oh, Lauren, we should do this. And then we, I just didn't do it. Um, that happens sometimes. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's, hopefully, I'm not the only one. Uh, but what he's saying is, don't just have the desire and the eagerness to start it, follow through with it and finish it. Finish it now because that's what uh, God is calling us to do. And when you do that, it will bring about the equality in the church that God desires. Uh, When you look at verse uh, 13 through 15, he'll talk some about that equality. He says, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction— but by way of equality. He says, I'm not trying to make things like great for them and bad for you. I'm just trying to equal things out a little bit. Uh, Verse 14, at the present time, your abundance being in supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Just as it is written, he who gathered did not gather too much or have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So, so some of like the laws in ancient Israel, if one person had a huge harvest and the other person had virtually nothing, the person who had virtually nothing could uh, enjoy and, and, uh, and reap the, the benefits of some of the generosity of the person who harvested a lot. So that the person who had a lot doesn't end up with too much and the person with little doesn't lack because they help each other out. Um, and so he's saying, that's what I want you to do for one another. I, I don't want you guys to suffer and them to have everything great. I just don't want them suffering while you have everything great. And who knows what the future holds? Maybe in 10 years, a famine's going to come your way, and I'll be telling them to do the exact same thing for you. And so this is just a way of, of making sure that everyone has what is needed uh, so that God could be honored by that. So uh, you, you can keep going through, and he's making, I think, some, some pretty uh, profound points. I want to skip to chapter 9. And uh, chapter 9, he continues uh, to make these, these same points. Um, but I want to uh, go through chapter 9 before we finish here and see uh, some of the, the next few ways that Paul uh, concludes his, his persuasive writing. Uh, verses, nine, uh, or verses 1 through 4, he says, It would be superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case, so that, uh, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if the Macedonians come with me and they find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Okay. That's, that's his way of saying, I've been telling the churches of Macedonia that you guys have been doing this for a year now and that you're prepared. And if we come down here and find that you are not prepared, you and me both are going to be horribly embarrassed. Uh, we're going to be put to shame in this way. Make sure that we don't suffer that type of shame. You said you were going to do this. You started doing it. 
finish it because people are going to be coming with me to collect this, and if it's not there, we're both going to look quite foolish. And so make sure that you finish the work that you started and don't say you're going to do a good thing and then slowly over time kind of weasel your way out of it or forget about it or neglect it and do something else. Make sure you finish what you start. But don't do so because it's a command. It's not a command. Don't do so begrudgingly. Recognize the tremendous opportunity to help others that is now being given to you. Recognize that this is a way that you can honor Jesus. Recognize that this is a way you can help those who Jesus loved and died for and bring about unity in the church because there's a lot to be excited about with this gift. You're doing something, you're doing good kingdom work here. Don't do it begrudgingly, do it cheerfully. As you read verses uh, 5 through 8, here, 5 through 7, he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. So I don't want, I don't want covetousness to sneak in there and end up robbing the church of Judea of this gift. So verse 6, now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, not compelling you or commanding you, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything— you may have an abundance for every good deed. And so not only should you do this and be happy to do it, but also know that God is watching and God cares and God sees your generosity and God rewards your generosity. Um, Don't think that this is something that will go unnoticed by God. Uh, God actually, he not only calls us to be generous, but he rewards that type of generosity. Uh, When you look at verses uh, 10 and 11, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And then finally, he wants to close by talking about and think about the worship and praise that God will get because of your act of generosity. Like, you can think about how it benefits you, and that's, that's okay. I mean, God will bless you for it, and God will uh, uh, be, uh, be, be uh, generous to you if you're generous to them. It will also be good to help other people. That's a great thing, too. It'll also bring about unity in the church. All of that is great. But one other consideration is think about how many prayers of thanksgiving God will receive because of your act. Through you, God is being worshiped and praised. And that's actually one of our calls as well, to bring about glory to God through our actions. So he says in verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. And while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Uh, So not only will they be thankful to you, they will also pray and give thanks to God. And you will grow closer to them. God will be honored and glorified. And all of this is in response to the ultimate gift that God has given each one of us. Thanks be to God for the indescribable gift. Uh, I love the way that Paul, while avoiding just simply commanding them to give, demonstrates so many of the ways that it is beneficial for, as a community of believers, to come together and act with generosity towards others. And he calls us to do it, and the whole thing is rooted in the generosity that Christ demonstrated towards us. The generosity that led him to the cross and that gives us the gift of salvation. And if there's anyone here tonight who would like to take part of that gift of salvation, to have your sins washed away, to have eternal life, we pray that you would let that be known. You can name Jesus as Lord and have your sins washed away in baptism. Please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.